We're really pleased, uh, especially pleased today to have uh, both Jim Anderson and uh, Dan Schrag here from Harvard University. Um, we didn't raid the university, and, uh, but we wanted to sort of pick their brains about some important issues, I think, that uh, need more vetting. And that is uh, essentially uh, walking around this issue of climate and energy in more detail and looking at it from the lens of energy. In other words, uh, where is the energy going that's going into the system that's creating the heat, and how is that energy distributed, and what are its consequences? In other words, uh, uh, the energy is the focal point of the problem. I mean, uh, uh, down the road, the, the solutions require how do you restore the energy to back from where it came. And I don't want to steal Jim's punchline or Dan's, but uh, uh, we're going to walk through that very carefully, and perhaps in the end of at the end of today, uh, maybe um, rewire some of your thinking about the climate energy issue, um, and step back from it a little bit and look at it perhaps a little differently. Anyway, without sort of taking up more time, yes, we are videotaping this. This is our first attempt to do a bona fide video, and we hope to offer that video in total on our website in a variety of formats, podcasts, um, we'll have an audio component to it, uh, we'll have a streaming video, and we'll have the entire thing that you can download and do what you want with. Um, so uh, it may not be up there tonight or tomorrow morning, but it'll be up there in some form, uh, presumably fairly quickly. Um, and we'll get better at this as we go on, but we're sort of walking through how to do this. and. Uh, Bear with us for a while, we'll get there. We'll not C-SPAN, but uh, we hope to uh, get uh, a quality product uh, over time. Anyway, having dwelled on that a little bit too much, uh, let me introduce the speakers today. And uh, I'll start with uh, Dr. Anderson, Jim Anderson, who's, uh, um, it's difficult to know where to start because it's just a list of awards for virtually everything and anything in chemistry. He's a member of the National Academy of Sciences. He's the winner of the uh, recipient of the uh, uh, UN Award for his achievements in, in ozone when that program was uh, flying very high when we had to deal with the ozone hole issue, the ozone depletion issue. Uh, turns out Jim's research uh, uh, pointed a finger and made the case for uh, the role of chlorine and uh, its its role in destroying, uh, helping to destroy the ozone layer. So uh, Jim's achievements were uh, recognized worldwide in uh, identifying the problem and uh, getting on with uh, the sort of resolution of it. Um, his uh, um, specialty, if you would say that, is uh, chemistry, the atmosphere, interactions, and climate change. Um, our second speaker, Daniel Schrag, uh, is uh, also from Harvard University, as I said. Uh, Dan has been working on uh, various aspects of climate change, looking at the big picture. In other words, going back to the history of the planet and looking at climate change through time, what climate change was composed of, how it's evolved over time, what it looked like years ago, and so it's had a really macro scale look at climate. 
Uh, he's looked at El Nino's, tropical Pacific circulation, glacials, interglacials. As I said, he's covered the whole gamut of climate. He's a recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship as well and uh, put some time in uh, uh, as a faculty member at both Princeton and Yale prior to coming to uh, Harvard University. So without taking up any more time, we're going to try to leave the lights the way they are and start off with Jim Anderson. Jim, thank you so much for coming, both you and Dan. Well, good afternoon. I should say at the outset that the issue of, of energy demand and the climate response to the energy demand is uh, both complex and contentious. And of course, almost all of you know that, or you wouldn't be here this afternoon. But at a much more fundamental level, there, there are similarities, um, in particular, examining the way energy flows through the economic structure and the way energy flows through the climate structure provides a very important scaling and comparison in this, in this endeavor. So uh, what I'd like to do is start out by looking at the unique point in history that all of us share. Of course, modern humans emerged 160,000 years ago, 8,000 generations ago. And the population of the Earth in the Roman period was on the order of 250 million people, and it remained there until the Renaissance. And 1776 is a very interesting year for us, but it's also the year that the world population struck one billion. And it reached two billion in, in 1945. And within one human lifetime, between 1945 and the middle of this century, the world population will expand from that two billion to nearly 10 billion people. And of course, this is in many ways uh, a number that is very difficult to grapple with intuitively because we haven't seen the impact of this population on the planet. We have very little empirical knowledge or background to judge its importance. And so when we look at this combination in this in this historical complex in, uh, con context, this increase in population has to be taken into account with increase in per capita wealth because it's the product of these two that not only drives the economic engine of the world, it also, as it turns out, it drives the impact that the combination of population and the economic endeavor has on the planet itself. So it's very important to stop before discussing this further and recognize what a unique time this is and how important it is to recognize the scale of this problem. So if we multiply this increase in population by average per capita income, uh, by the energy demand per dollar of economic output, we can calculate the global economic machine. And the world population now is about six billion and the per capita income is on the order of 5,000. So that's $30 trillion a year economic endeavor globally. So we're immediately into the trillions. And the units that I will use, as you see in the short write-up, are the units of billion trillion joules, the, the unit of energy, which is really what the discussion has to come down to. And the product of population per capita income and energy demand is this global energy number in 
joules. And in 2005, this number was 0.5 billion trillion joules per year of energy. And this begins to set the scale of the problem. And I'll stick to this unit all the way through the discussion because everything scales with it, both in the economic system and in the climate system. So joules are the unit, and we will talk about multipliers of billion, trillion joules. 2050, because of the increase in population to 10 billion and the increase in per capita income to on the order of $8,000 per person, this turns out to be 1.5 billion, trillion joules of energy. So what does this mean? The equivalent of this is to determine the rate of increase in the production of energy required to meet this demand. And this demand is actually quite conservative, as Dan will point out to you. Almost every number I present to you is the current acceptable number, and in almost all cases, it's a conservative number. So what does this translate into? Well, to, to meet the energy requirements in 2050, we have to construct 1,000 large coal-burning power plants per year for the next 40 years. And this is where the scale of the increase in energy demand begins to come to roost. Or we can commission 250 nuclear power plants per year for the next 40 years. So this is on the order of, of three uh, coal-burning power plants per day or a nuclear power plant every day and a half. And this is the scale that, that the energy demand thrusts upon us. And this is where developing intuition for the rate of increase in this energy requirement becomes so important. So let's turn to the way energy flows through the climate system rather than through the economic system. Here, the sun, of course, driven by nuclear fission, at its core, produces visible radiation that the Earth receives, and the amount of energy in the same units received by the Earth from the sun is about 5,500 billion trillion joules per year, of which about 1,500 are reflected back to space. That's why the Earth is as beautiful as it is when it's photographed from space. That's the component that reflects back in the visible. And that means that the climate system itself takes in the difference of those two, or 4,000 billion trillion joules per year. And in the course of the transition of that energy within the climate system, the Earth then radiates the same 4,000 joules back to, to the blackness of space, but in the infrared, so we don't see it. But the same amount of energy goes back into space in the infrared as the Earth glows into space as is received from the sun. So all this would be true independent of whether there was an atmosphere or what the particular structure was. This balance, this intrinsic balance, would always be at play. The issue is what happens within the climate system. How does the energy flow within that system? And so we start with... Uh, these 5,500 billion trillion joules, 1,500 of them going back out to outer space, and then the visible radiation distributes itself through the atmosphere, earth, ocean, and so on, sustaining the temperature of the earth. But that infrared radiation that's emitted cycles through the system such that 
some 6,000 billion trillion joules cycle between the Earth's surface and the atmosphere. And that turns out to be an extremely important number because we're going to look at how the very delicate change in the balance of this energy exchange is so important for our future. And then, of course, these 4,000 billion trillion work their way back out through the system in the infrared. So um, this large flow that cycles, and this is not dissimilar from putting a coat on in the winter. There's a lot more infrared radiation at play between your body and the inside of the coat than there is coming into or going out of you as a system. So this isn't surprising, but it's a very important number because the scale of that number and very small shifts in it are so crucial, and that's really the point here. So small, very small changes in that cycling energy created by the addition of carbon dioxide that, of course, constitutes 80% of what drives the energy component of the economic system. Small changes in that affect the 6,000 zeta joules that are cycling in a very profound way and, as we'll see, is really the crucial point uh, for the future. So what's the evidence? What's the irrefutable evidence for where the heat goes into the major reservoirs of the Earth? And that, those reservoirs are primarily the ocean, but also the ice systems, the atmosphere, and the Earth's surface. So what's the evidence? Well, in the past 50 years, into the ocean have flowed 200 of these billion trillion joules. So that's about 4 billion trillion joules per year. The ice systems have taken up about 18 billion trillion joules over 50 years. The continents, 9, and the atmosphere, 7. So what's the manifestation of the uptake of this heat into these dominant reservoirs? There's no question this is occurring. The most sensitive measure of this is the Arctic ice cap. And I think all of you have probably seen this in the last three to four weeks. These data were released uh, uh, some, some three weeks ago. They were taken in the microwave region, which provides evidence in the absence of clouds. And so when you start back uh, in 1980, 1979, when these observations were first available, we had about 7 million square kilometers of Arctic ice, and it worked its way down uh, to the previous record in 2005, and then this last year, on the 16th of September, that ice coverage reached about 3.7 million square kilometers. Now, this is not simply a con contraction of area. It's also a contraction of depth. We know from uh, nuclear submarines in the 1950s that the ice was about 2.5 meters thick. It's now on the average of 1 meter thick over this area. Now, this took one-tenth of a billion trillion joules per year to melt the Arctic ice cap at this rate. That's a tenth of the 6,000 cycling through the system. So when you watch very carefully the flow of heat into these reservoirs, it tells you not only what's happening irrefutably, it demonstrates how sensitive the system is to very small shifts in the trapping of that infrared radiation. So. The question then becomes, can the Earth lose 50% of its Arctic ice mass in 50 years and return to a stable condition? Well, the answer to this, of course, involves what changes are instigated by the removal of that Arctic ice. And this instigates the question of feedbacks. And we've seen this 
if, if we were holding this discussion just four years ago, we would be arguing about whether the Arctic ice cap was going to survive the century. That is, would it last 80 years, 120 years? If we were having this discussion two years ago, we would be arguing whether it disappears, and this is the forecast out of the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Uh, this is between 2040 and 2050. So just two years ago, the debate was, well, maybe the middle part of the century. And of course, what happens is you create a very abrupt transition because of the feedbacks, and I'll point to those in just a moment. But since the data came in just three weeks ago that we're now down to 3.7 million square kilometers, now it looks like 2015, the summer Arctic ice will disappear. So what does this mean? Well, it means that the feedbacks that are always present are opened in an unprecedented way. Heat carried by the ocean, both from the Pacific and from the Atlantic, flows in because it's, it's no longer physically blocked. In 2000, or in 1979, ice extended all the way around and locked the entire system, so it was impenetrable by ocean currents. The warmer surface over which the atmosphere moves transmits heat into the system that was blocked prior to that. The warm surface water emits infrared. It's the same very large energy that cycles through the system that we mentioned before, and that is radiated back down into the system. So these feedbacks become very important. This is very similar to having a home mortgage and having uh, the interest rate rise. As the interest rate rise, rises, it becomes more and more difficult to keep up with the payments, and you reach a very critical point where the feedbacks overwhelm the system. And it's the irreversibility that's implied by this that carries the profound message of why tracking the flow of heat is so important for this system. Now, this isn't without precedent. If we go back in time prior to the uh, two million years ago, of course, during the glacial interglacial period that filled in from now back to two million years ago, at very low carbon dioxide, it's the subtleties of the Earth's orbit that determines whether we go into or out of an ice age. But that's a very different situation than the condition when we get above 300 to 350 parts per million carbon dioxide because the trapping of the heating overwhelms the subtleties in the orbit of the Earth. In fact, we go back to the Eocene, and both Dan and I have looked at this in some, some detail. And at that point, the, the world's oceans and the, and the surface temperature was running 8 to 10 Celsius above where it is today. This is the zero point, so 2, 4, 6, 8 Celsius, warmer. And as the carbonate silicate chemistry on the surface drew carbon dioxide down to the unprecedented low before <laughs> the Industrial Revolution, only at that point did the orbital parameters take over. But prior to that, the Eocene period was characterized by, by palm trees, alligators running the edge of the Arctic Ocean. There was almost no temperature difference between the equator and the pole. It was a completely different climate state. The, the, there was no ice in either hemisphere, and the ocean was about 200 feet above its current level. So this isn't unprecedented. There's no reason why this can't be inflicted on the planet. So the next question is, how would we know that we've regained control of the climate system? What's the evidence for this? 
And the evidence is, again, held in two pieces. One, the heat loss from the oceans. If we actually see heat coming out of the oceans, we will know that we've regained control of the system. But a much more sensitive indicator, of course, is the annual surface area of the Arctic, because it is the beautifully sensitive system that tells us whether we're in deficit or whether we are actually in balance and under control. And so that is the, the, the question. Uh, when we observe that the flow of heat is reversed, that the heat is actually flowing out of these systems, only at that point will we know that we've regained control of the system. So, of course, the Arctic is the indicator, but Greenland is the crucial issue because floating ice doesn't raise sea level. The, the Greenland ice cap contains seven meters of sea level rise or 21 feet of sea level rise. And, of course, this is a, a plot also that many of you see, have seen of the melt water on top of Greenland. This isn't ice melting all the way to the base. It's the melt water on the top. And it's the dynamics of the ice structure that matters most on... Uh, on this issue of the future of Greenland. And of course, the IPCC report, for all that it brought to all of us, didn't include ice dynamics in the forecast of what will occur to, to Greenland. Now, an ice forecast without ice dynamics is very similar to a weather forecast without dynamic meteorology. If you don't take into account atmospheric motion and all of the interplay that's involved, you cannot forecast it. And of course, this is a evolving process. It's not the fault of the IPCC, but ice dynamics becomes very important because the way these systems segment and the way they transfer heat from the surface to the base becomes very important. So if we look at this as a system and, and examine how much heat or how much thermal energy is required to melt it, it's about 500 billion trillion joules. Okay? That's a tenth of the energy cycling through the system each year. So if we look at this ex over a 100-year period, that's 5 billion trillion joules required to melt it. And that's five parts out of 5,000 of the available cycle. So small shifts can become very, very important for this particular case. Now, this is actually uh, Dan's. He created this for a publication he did this for, for this issue on sea level rise. This is the Gulf Coast, and recall that Greenland is seven meters. If we add three meters of sea level rise, this is what happens to, to Florida. The entire southern third disappears, and of course the Gulf Coast is, is well known for its sensitivity <coughs> for increasing sea level heights. Now this has a, a, a larger regional um, continental context. It also has a local context, and, and of course we like to on ourselves, so let's look at the middle of Cambridge. Um, this is Harvard, it's 400 years old, nearly, and it's about to spend $10 billion building a new campus across the Charles River from the old campus. Um, and just to be fair, I should point out that MIT sits down here, so, <laughs> so we can take a look at what happens when we add three meters of sea level rise to this picture. So this is, a, this is an issue that's of immediate concern because these are ostensibly enlightened institutions and what you do today and how you understand the evolving picture becomes important not for decisions for 
children and our grandchildren, although that's a very important consideration, it becomes very important right now. Are you ready to accept all those MIT students? <laughs> well, let's see, the admissions department uh, doesn't have anything to worry about right now except how to keep the numbers down. The question is when the ocean comes up, how do you deal with it? This is a very interesting topography, and I think, if, as you know, if you look back in the Revolutionary War, this is to some extent the way the map looked. I have the five-meter one, which looks exactly like the Revolutionary War. All of this, this, used, this is Cambridgeport. It used to have shipping coming in. So uh, the topography here is very uh, complex and very, very sensitive. And this isn't unusual. If I showed you Manhattan, it would be exactly the same, all of all the coastal cities. And of course, that's true around the world. So this presents us with, and I'm just about finished here, um, uh, with a very simple question. By what means do we have at our disposal to remove heat from these global reservoirs? Because until heat starts flowing back out of them, the Earth is not on a trajectory that is stable and in any way sustainable. Um, the alternative statement or question is, is there any known strategy for extracting heat from these global reservoirs? And the scale of that extraction is a few billion trillion joules to regain control of the system. And here's where the economic energy flow and the climate energy flow intersect because remember we said that 0.5 billion trillion joules is the entire global energy endeavor. And so we can't simply say, well, let's commit 20% of our total energy to refrigerating the system. These numbers are vastly larger than that. We have to control this situation by controlling the delicate flow of energy into these systems. And this is simple and it's irrefutable. So it leaves us with an axiom then. It's the net flow of heat that we have to watch very carefully. It's not globally average temperatures. Globally average temperatures have very little motive force behind them. One reason is that most people would like to see their backyard warmer. The demographics are very clear. People are pouring out of New England pouring southward to achieve just that. Global average temperature is a, is, a, is a very poor way to articulate the seriousness of this problem. If we watch the flow of heat, it's the flow of heat that guides future events. So a corollary to this is that these feedbacks that are engendered in large measure by the disappearance of this Arctic ice control the, the flow of heat in this climate system. It's those that set the stage for the irreversibility in the system. And with that, I'll end and Dan. Thank you, Jim. And thank you everyone for, for coming today. I mean, I think the, the take-home message, oh, okay. Uh, I think the take-home message from Jim's presentation is really that, that we're, we're monkeying with a system here, throwing a wrench in a machine that is a huge machine that we don't understand very well. And what I'm gonna try to do is give you a different perspective on that machine, the climate system, um, from the perspective of, a, of an Earth historian. 
somebody who looks at the history of climate. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about what, we're, what are the range of possible actions humans can take to actually try to deal with this. Because um, when all is said and done, I actually am an optimist in that um, I, I think we can actually deal with this problem. Um, of course, when we're talking about energy, we're talking, especially here in Congress, we're not just talking about environment. Environment is one component. We have to think about economic issues and security issues as well, and politically those are going to be at the center of any discussion. Um, but it, the intersection, um, you know, these discussions tend to be held separately, and these discussions have to be held together. Um, these issues have to be, be coupled in a fundamental way, and I think that's something that, that many people are working on now. So, so we all know CO2 is going up. This is Dave Keeling's famous curve. Over his lifetime, he saw it rise from about 315 parts per million to above 380 parts per million. Um, I do think it's important to look at this in a more historical perspective. This, uh, this is now the ice core record from Vostok and from Epica. So this is the last 650,000 years of CO2 fluctuating from about 180 parts per million to a high, maybe around just under 300 parts per million. And this is the Keeling curve in that context, okay? But the important thing to realize about the trajectory we're on is that regardless of what we do, well, barring maybe World War III, but, you know, in total nuclear holocaust, but essentially almost independent of what we do, in the next 40 years, we're going to be at 500 parts per million, okay? The argument about what to do about climate change thus far has focused not on whether we're going to go to 500, but how much above 500 we're going to be. 500 is considered the solution. And one of the points that I think comes out of Jim's analysis of the heat budget of the planet is that 500 ppm is not a solution. 500 ppm could be a disaster. It depends on the rates of the response of the Earth's system. Now, the way I think about this is it's an experiment. It's an experiment on the planet that hasn't been done for about 35 million years. We know from the ice cores that CO2 hasn't been above 300 ppm for about, well, now we're trying to push it back closer to a million years, but from these data, it's, it's 650,000 years. But indirectly, we can estimate CO2 levels, and, and we don't think that CO2 has been much above this for about 35 million years. So, so that frames this whole problem in an important way. If you think that any of us scientists are smart enough to predict the Earth system in the next hundred years perfectly, think again. We're going to get it wrong. And the reason is that this is something that hasn't been done for 35 million years. We're taking the system and all of our models, which are calibrated to the last hundred years of observations, and we're taking the planet to a state it hasn't been in for 35 million years. Now, here's the problem. Scientists are conservative. So one of the things I want to point out in the next few slides is that again and again, when scientists make predictions of the future, they're going to be wrong a lot because, again, it's an experiment. You don't expect them to get it right perfectly. But when they're wrong, there's going to be a bias, I think, unfortunately, in the wrong direction. And we see that, actually, systematically. So just a quick review. Jim already covered some of this material, and I'll, I'll just rush through it. This is the last time when CO2 was above, say, 500 parts per million. We don't know exactly what CO2 was then, but it was in the range of 500 to maybe as high as 2,000 parts per million. Palm trees were in Wyoming, crocodiles were up in the Arctic and Ellesmere Island, Antarctica was a coniferous forest. It was a very different world. It sounds like a nice world, 
The problem is adaptation, how fast. The key is the rate. The fact that it changed from the Eocene to our current world over 50 million years, no problem. 50 million years is plenty of time for animals to adapt, even evolve. Um, and for, for people, for various, various um, ecosystems to, to migrate. But if we do it in 100 years, it's a problem. Now, this is the state that the atmosphere is going to be in by the end of the century. Now, that doesn't mean that the whole world is going to get there in 100 years. The ocean is probably going to take more than 1,000 years to warm up, to completely respond to the level of CO2. So that's good. It's good that the Earth system has some inertia in it that's going to keep it from instantly meeting this, this energy balance. And that's, that's really because of the energy flows that Jim was talking about. At the same time, um, certain parts of the Earth can respond very quickly. And we just don't know how fast. And that's really the issue. I want to remind you also of the scale of this problem. This is an important calibration exercise for people. This is a picture showing on the, on the left the world 18,000 years ago, the northern hemisphere 18,000 years ago. You can see glaciers covering most of North America. Ice came down to about New York City, where I grew up. Um, ice sheet over, over, over part of Europe as well. Sea level was about 130 meters lower than today because there was so much ice stored on the continents. Very different world. To put this in perspective, the difference between the world on the left and the modern day is about five degrees global average temperature. Okay? What we're talking about is going five degrees in the other direction over the course of the next 100, if we're lucky, maybe 150 years. So that's the scale of the experiment we're doing. It's a profound experiment. It's not small. And I think that's, that's again, a, a take-home message that follows it up. So, so we're performing an experiment at a planetary scale that hasn't been done for millions of years. No one knows exactly what's going to happen. There will be surprises. We can make predictions. We know some of the things that we should worry about, that human society should worry about. Droughts, heat waves, floods, storms, sea level rise, all of that. Mountain snowmelt's one that doesn't get enough attention, but it's a really big deal. California uses the Sierra Nevada as a natural reservoir. If the Sierra snowmelt starts melting all in March instead of lasting through the summer, California is in big trouble. I want to talk about the same problem. Think about China and India and the dependence on the Himalayan glaciers. Um, Indian, I was in Del New Delhi just uh, a month or two ago, and uh, the Indian government is very concerned about Chinese um, activities in Nepal and uh, control of rivers there. They're all dependent on the same water system. That's, that's more than 3 billion people in that region dependent on a relatively small geographic area, which is a source of, of water for them. So they're going to be winners and losers. We know that. But predicting exactly what's going to happen is difficult, again, because it's an experiment we haven't done for a long time. Let me just give you a couple of quick examples of how the Earth system in general tends to be more sensitive than what we tend to predict from the best models in theory based on observations of the last 100 years. This is Hurricane Katrina. It's a beautiful storm if you actually study hurricanes. Um, it didn't hit New Orleans. Sometimes people say it, it hit New Orleans. Luckily, it didn't hit New Orleans. There were over 400,000 people in the New Orleans metropolitan area when Katrina came ashore in Mississippi, and thankfully it didn't because it would have flooded New Orleans in, in a manner of minutes instead of over the next couple of days. So we're very lucky that it didn't hit New Orleans. Um, a few weeks before that paper came out, Carrie Emanuel, our colleague at MIT, published this paper in Nature, which was showing this graph, which is the, the dashed line is something called the power dissipation index. It's essentially the energy dissipated by, by, by Atlantic hurricanes. 
and he showed a strong correlation with sea surface temperature from the subtropical Atlantic. But if you read this paper, that's not what this paper is about. In fact, the fact that they're so closely correlated, and you can forget the data before about 1970 because there were no satellites and so we don't have good observations. Um, the fact that they were strongly correlated wasn't a big surprise. We know that hurricanes get their energy from the sea surface. What this paper was about was the fact that the actual energy dissipation was twice as large as what the best theory predicted. And now there are about a half a dozen competing explanations in the, in the meteorological community to try to reconcile the observations with theory. And over the next few years, we'll work that out, and the theory will improve. But again, here's the point, that the Earth showed that it was more sensitive than what our best theory predicted. Um, the same is true with the Arctic sea ice, and Jim covered this. He showed you the still of this. I think it's actually so stunning that you should actually see the, the animated version. This is now NASA's visualization, which is really beautiful, but it shows this evolution of what the Arctic looked like through the 80s and into the 90s, showing this very steady decline in Arctic sea ice. Um, I got a call from a staff member of Congressman Waxman just uh, a month or two ago, um, and he said, what the hell are you guys doing? Just last year you said it was going to be 2050. We haven't been paying attention to the Danes and the Russians and the Canadians fighting over stuff. And all of a sudden, you know, you're talking about 2015. 2015 is tomorrow. If you wanted to build a ship to do, do, do shipping, look, the entire margin of Russia, you get sort of washed out with the light on, but this entire margin of Russia is open. You can just sail right out the Bering Strait. Um, if you wanted to build ships for that purpose that could withstand a little ice in the fall and the spring, you'd have to start constructing them now. So this is not some long-off thing anymore. This is real. And what could I say? I said, look, we're going to get it wrong a lot. And here's another example of where we got it wrong but in the wrong direction. The Earth system is changing much faster than scientists expected because we tend to be conservative. We tend to believe in 95% confidence intervals. And therefore, we don't like to be wrong. Now, Jim mentioned this a little bit, tipping points, instabilities in the Earth system that can change rapidly once thresholds are crossed. And, and the two that I think of most are the ice sheets and then parts of the carbon cycle that can change rapidly. There are two parts of this that worry me. Jim has talked about ice sheets. Let me just briefly mention the, the permafrost. Um, this is pictures of, of, of material called yodoma. It's a, it's a type of soil which is very high in organic carbon. The reason is this is essentially frozen dust that, that has a lot of plant material that normally would get digested in soils very, very quickly. You know, basically breakdown of organic matter of leaves and, and, and plant material. But because it's so cold, it doesn't happen. It's essentially frozen plant matter in the soil. Now, the problem is that there's a lot of it up there. Over, over the last 150 years, we've burned about 500 billion tons of carbon in fossil fuel. In the soils in the Arctic, there are about 1,000 billion tons of carbon frozen there. And so the question is, and, and, and this number is 500 because it's out of date. It's actually closer to 1,000 now by the most recent inventories. Um, the question is, how long will it take? As the, as the tundra warms up, the Arctic ice is disappearing, how long will it take for bacteria to, to take that, that organic carbon and convert it either to methane or to CO2 and release it to the atmosphere? The answer is, we have no idea. Could be 100 years, it could be 500 years. But at 1,000 billion tons of carbon, if it's 100 years, 
averaging 10 billion tons a year, that's more than the global fossil fuel emissions. We will have completely lost control of the system. Now, I don't think that's likely, but I really don't know what the right answer is. And that's, again, the scale of the experiment we're doing here. Um, I think similarly to what Jim said, it's the same thing with ice sheets. Six meters on West Antarctica, Greenland, seven meters. We're not going to even talk about East Antarctica because we hope it's going to stay there a very long time. That's about 50 meters of sea level change. And we just don't know how long it's going to take. The glaciology is so uncertain as how long. This is an experiment that's never been done, and we just don't know how long it's going to take to melt them. So to be conservative in the IPCC, this is what the scientists projected. So this is the best observations of mass loss from Greenland. It's from the uh, gravity analysis of, from, a, from a satellite. And it's, it, here's, the, here's the decline in terms of this. It's, it's a rate of about a half a millimeter of sea level rise per year. It's pretty slow right now. Over the century, that would be five centimeters. And about the same from Antarctica, so a total of about 10 centimeters over the century. So what the IPCC did, did was said, OK, it's so uncertain what's going to happen to these glaciers, let's just keep it constant. Let's just project that it's going to stay the same. And so the projection will be 10 centimeters over the century. But what's the probability that the glaciers are going to stay the same as the Earth warms, that they're going to continue to rate at the, the melt at the same rate? Right? You know where the error bar is in this, and it's only in one direction. So this is really a big concern. So what's the solution? What level is dangerous? We don't know. An important point I hear a lot is that, oh, we can just adapt to climate change. Um, adaptation is a very serious issue. It's not just random walk. It's not just casual, you know, let's just react to it as, as it comes. Adaptation is actually a very expensive thing. Substantial climate change is unavoidable, so adaptation is essential, and it's not necessarily cheap. This is the Thames Barrier in London. It cost about a billion pounds when it was built. Okay, it protects London from flooding. It's serious engineering, and they're going to build more, and they're going to strengthen it. The Netherlands is famous for this, right? So this is the Netherlands. This is a huge part of the Netherlands is underwater. That's this dark yellow part, and this is the dikes. And then this is what we do in New Orleans. <laughs> the, the comparison is, uh, is stunning. Um, but the important point is that we're dealing with a system that's so vast that without mitigation, adaptation becomes impossible. So it's not a choice. You need to do both. And you need to do both seriously. And adaptation may cost more than mitigation. That's the irony. It's not a cheap solution. OK, this is what the last 150 years of energy use looks like. So we have you know, wood, essentially, coal, oil, gas, and then nuclear here in the red. This little tiny blue sliver is hydro plus. Hydro plus means hydro plus all the renewables, solar, wind, et cetera. The solar, wind, geothermal are so tiny that they don't even get their own band because that's how small a part, portion of our total energy system they are. So what's the next 100 years going to look like? That's the question. This, just to give you some more bad news before I try to give you some good news, this is um, different, these different lines are different trajectories of emissions projected by the IPCC. These aren't predictions, these are scenarios. So they're used for planning purposes. They're just different scenarios. This is their lowest one. This is an even lower one, which is 450 parts per million stabilization. And this is the highest business as usual scenario. And these are data of what the world has done. And that's the 2005 and 6 data. Okay? 
So the highest business as usual scenario has a world growth rate of energy of about 2.4%. And since 2000, we've been growing at about 3.3%. So we are way above the highest of the business as usual scenarios. We are not doing a good job at solving this problem. We are now at 8.4 billion tons of carbon emissions per year. For most of my entire academic career, we were between six and seven. And then all of a sudden, now we're at 8.4. Bad news. This is the world, the carbon content of fossil fuel that we use. This is 2005 production of coal, oil, and gas. And these are the proven reserves. It's an economic concept. It's based on the current price. So there's a lot more fossil fuel there than these numbers suggest. But it gives you a sense, especially this coal number is probably way too small. Here's the problem. We don't really have good substitutes right now for oil. There's not enough biofuel to make much of a difference. Natural gas, we need every bit of it for um, it's hard to substitute for that as well. So, so it's, you know, this, we just can't put this much carbon, 700 billion tons of coal, 150 billion tons of, of oil, 100 billion tons of natural gas into the atmosphere. We, we need to figure out what to do. Um, there's some good news here, which is that most emissions come from relatively few sources. This is from a study that uh, the, the financial firm Alliance Bernstein did. 150 stationary sources emitted in 2005 as much CO2 as the global car fleet. And the largest 1,000 stationary sources account for almost 30% of, a little more than 30% of global emissions. So, and, and a lot of them are in China and India, about half. Uh, China and the US. So, so the answer is that with some technologies like clean coal, for example, a number of other possibilities, carbon sequestration, we can actually um, t do a lot on this problem. But I suspect that it's not going to be enough. Price of electricity tends to drive efficiency. That's the other good news. So economic signals in the market do tend to work. And there's some places, like California, for example, that's done an amazing job with regulation um, that stabilized electricity consumption in a huge way, 30% below the US average per capita. So there are lots of possibilities. The US actually has a lot of low-hanging fruit because we're so inefficient right now. But what if scientists are wrong and climate change happens faster than we expected? And I think this is not that unlikely a scenario. What would we do in the next 30 years if we had information that Greenland and West Antarctica were accelerating and started to rapidly collapse? As Jim says, until we actually start fixing the problem, until we see more heat coming out than going in, we're not going to be in a very safe place. So that leads us to this discussion of, of geoengineering. Now, geoengineering has become a catch-all term for all sorts of things. This is a figure from David Keith's review paper from Nature from a few, several years ago. This is, you know, includes things like growing trees, genetically engineering crops, greening deserts, fertilizing algae in the ocean, all sorts of different things. I think it's become too broad a term. I like to use the term specifically climate engineering. And what I mean by climate engineering is not these things that affect the carbon cycle. Those are essentially similar to reducing fossil fuel emission. They operate on the same time scales as the carbon cycle, which is many decades to 100 years. We can't do any of these things at the scale that would actually remove the problem in a few years. However, these two, aerosols in the stratosphere or giant reflectors in orbit, I think of it as something else, climate engineering, because if we put up reflectors, whether they're in the stratosphere or in orbit, they would actually affect the climate tomorrow. Now, this is a little scary. We had a workshop in, in Harvard uh, 
month or so ago, Jim, and, Jim was there and a number of other people from around the country. Um, here were some of the questions we, we thought about. How do we do it? What exactly does it do to the climate system? Remember that reflecting solar radiation in the short wave is different than capturing long wave radiation from greenhouse gases. Very different physical process, very different climate response. If you had a system like this, what might go wrong? How fail-proof is it? Because now the whole planet depends on it. Does it postpone the need to reduce emissions? Will it postpone the need to reduce emissions politically? Because people think there's a technological fix. Here's one of the biggest challenges. Who controls it? This is not like reducing emissions where everybody has to cooperate, or at least the big countries have to cooperate. This is the opposite. Any number of countries, any number of one of maybe 20 or 30 countries could do this quite easily. And you might have dueling systems. And remember, because they're likely to be winners and losers, who gets to decide? If it's good for us and bad for China, what happens? Um, all of these things we were discussing, and I've got to tell you, there were many people who thought this was just a terrifying and terrible idea. But there was a strong consensus that we actually need to think about this because the alternative may be even worse. And I think that's the important perspective. For people who think this is a technological fix, I, I urge you to think again. This is really not a technological fix that allows us to keep burning coal in perpetuity. The problem is that this sort of a system has all sorts of problems and impacts that don't just cancel out the effects of CO2. Moreover, if you keep making CO2 higher and higher, the potential for a catastrophic mistake goes way up. If you're trying to correct 500 ppm down to 400 ppm, that's one thing. If you're trying to correct for 1,000 ppm, now you have the potential for a real catastrophe. For people who think this is just a bad idea and what incredible hubris and arrogance we have that we think we can control the climate system and that we should, you know, how dare we actually think about that? And there are many people who say that to me. I think, well, that's true. I completely agree with you. And yet, the alternative may be even worse because we don't know that 500 parts per million, which is, I think, the best we're ever going to do in emissions, in, in limiting emissions is, is 500 parts per million in the atmosphere may still result in changes that are unacceptable to many of us. So if you're a leader, if you're a senator or a congressman, uh, if you're the president of the United States and you get an information that Greenland's collapsing, not in the next 200 years but in the next 20 years, this is something you're going to consider. So we have to start thinking about this so that we can actually do this wisely. Not that we may ever, we may never do this, but we have to actually think about it very carefully um, and start taking the entire climate system seriously, which includes adaptation, it includes lowering emissions with a variety of technological and energy efficiency approaches, and third, this is going to be on the table as well. I'll leave it there and we can have a discussion. It's more manageable to deal with the front end of this problem, that is the emissions, the, the forcing of climate, the greenhouse gas component of this issue, than perhaps it might be to deal with the feedback part of this, which could be very long-lived 
and at rates that we don't know much about and that could be larger than the forcing, the greenhouse gases, which places a lot of emphasis on the emissions uh, issue itself. Um, do you want to comment on that? Is that a correct, is that a reasonable read of what I thought I heard you say? I actually think, Tony, that it's important to not frame it as a trade-off. You make it sound like you can do one or the other. And I think that's the wrong way to look at this. We need to reduce emissions. That's going to be a challenge for the world for this century. There is no technological fix that's going to keep us from having to do that. However, with all the best efforts, the world may still not reduce emissions fast enough, and the climate system may still change faster than we can tolerate. We meaning the world, meaning ecosystems, meaning whoever decides to start thinking about this. And then there may be an attempt to do this. And let's hope it goes well and doesn't go badly. The potential for it to go badly is huge. We haven't even talked about the potential for using this as a military weapon. There are all sorts of science fiction movies about this, but it's not a joke. It's actually something that is, is is serious. So the, the use and misuse of this kind of technology is, is very daunting. Well, I guess uh, I've, I've made this point first and foremost. The, uh, I, I would agree, Tony, that it's what we do early that, that counts the most because in many ways Arctic was given to us as a gift to represent very clearly what's happening if we choose to listen to it. And the simplicity of the message that the Arctic ice is giving us is so powerful and so compelling that um, I, I think that no matter how quickly react, we react to this evidence, we can't react quickly enough because it, I, the analogy I like to think of is if you're driving an 18-wheeler over the top of a mountain range and you come in to the descending part of your trip and you're moving a little bit too fast and the, and the mountain is steepening in front of you, you need to, to, to react early and gently to this problem in order to, to regain control because you have a very visceral feeling for what the combination of the rate of your motion and the increasing steepness of the hill in front of you delivers to you as an option, particularly if the cliff is hanging off to your right. So my reaction is we already know enough to say we had better regain control of the Arctic and we had better see heat coming back out of that system and that ice forming. Otherwise, the feedbacks connected with that are far more powerful than the feedbacks in almost any other aspect of the system. And as Dan showed you, Greenland is sitting out alone in the Northern Hemisphere as an ice system and it is in, in great jeopardy. So I, I don't see this as an experiment so much I think we've executed the experiment. I think we have to look very carefully at the sign of the flow of heat, and I think the evidence is, is in. And I would have to say that, that the earlier this is treated, the more capable we are of regaining uh, control. And as, as Dan pointed out, putting aerosols into the stratosphere is actually a, a very powerful process that, that volcanoes do for us. And as 
you can gather, I spent most of my life worrying about the ozone problem. So I'm not somebody who's particularly pleased with putting aerosols into the stratosphere because aerosols draw the oxides of nitrogen out of the system and release the catalytic agents that attack ozone. So I'm, in, uh, on the face of it, the last person you'd ever bring up a subject of adding aerosols to the stratosphere. But life's a question of alternatives. And we know from Pinatubo that the Earth cooled dramatically, and we know very clearly why. It's about the forcing, the rejection of that shortwave forcing coming in from the sun that did that. So if we do that early and gently and we watch it, we can do that with reasonable confidence because nature has tested that process. If we wait just a little bit too long and the stratosphere starts taking on water because of the CO2 forcing, we lose that option. It's like being unable to put the brakes on the system. So my feeling is that we have a lot more evidence when we look at the simple, irrefutable part of this, and we, we need to act early. Um, let me invite everybody who has a question up front, because we are taping this. I'd rather everybody speak into the microphone. So if you've got a question, I'm going to ask you to come up front and form a line, whichever way the line goes, I don't care. And then the speakers will take the microphone after you've asked the question. So, uh, no questions? Ah, okay. And uh, if you want, um, uh, use this as a networking opportunity, identify who you are and where you're from. Thank you. My name is Alan Weinstein. I'm a retired PhD meteorologist, so I do this as a hobby more than a career. But I have a question. Uh, in the past, uh, when geologic time, when the CO2 levels were high or maybe even higher than they are now, what happened to bring them down? Um, the, uh, the natural carbon cycle on very long time scales is actually controlled by something that's very, not very important on short time scales, which is the amount of CO2 coming out of volcanoes. It's a trickle. It's about 1% of fossil fuel emissions. And it's balanced by a chemical reaction between that CO2 that mixes with water and reacts with rock on the surface of the Earth. We call it weathering. And uh, it results in calcium carbonate, or limestone, being formed on the ocean floor. That reaction basically converts CO2 to limestone. Now, so there's this balance. CO2 comes out of volcanoes and ends up as limestone. We think. 50 million years ago, there was a lot more CO2 coming out of volcanoes. And as a result, the steady state amount in the atmosphere was higher. And over the last 30 million years, well, really between 50 and about 35 million years, we've seen a steady decline in CO2 due to essentially the slowdown of release of CO2 from volcanoes. So those are long time natural cycles. They're not going to change rapidly in the next 100 years. And they're not going to help us much in the next 100 years. Uh, I'm Jay Gulledge. I'm uh, with the Pew Center on uh, Global Climate Change. And uh, my question is about the scale of energy demand, growth, growth of energy demand. And as, as I recall, uh, you said that we would need a, a, a thousand new coal, large coal plants per year for the next 40 years. So that's 40,000 coal plants, large ones. So equivalent to our largest today, I assume. How, uh, how does that compare to our current energy-generating infrastructure? And does what we have today 
pale in comparison in terms of the, the economic investment required to put in place however we choose to do it technologically. And are we, economically speaking, are we losing anything by just going to a new non-carbon emitting type technology, whether that be CCS with coal or, or, or any, other, any other source? So it's really about the scale of the economics. Okay, the quick calculation for that comes out of the fact that we're using 0.5 billion trillion joules per year and we're evolving up to the year 2050 at 1.5 billion trillion. And you did the calculation perfectly. That's 40,000.5 gigawatt coal-fired power plants. So we already have the numbers in front of us. That's 40,000 per one billion trillion, so we're at 0.5, we have 20,000 operating today. Okay. Let me, let me so, give an economic response, though. I, the second part of your question in terms of what, what about, you know, I think what you were trying to get at is the, how much sunk investment do we have in our current operations and therefore what is the overall cost? That's the part of this discussion that I think is both good news and bad news. The good news is rebuilding our entire energy infrastructure in this country over the next 30 years, completely, if we did it over 30 years, would be about, estimates are, are, are vary, but I would say a conservative high estimate is about 1% of GDP, which is about 100 billion a year for the US, let's call it. 100 billion a year doesn't sound like that much. Now, the bad news is it's a lot more than anybody in Congress is talking about spending on the climate problem next year. So, so we have to go from a few billion to about 100 billion. But, you know, it's not 500 billion a year. It's not Pentagon-sized. It's smaller than that. It's 100 billion a year. So, so that's the scale of the problem. Um, some estimates have been even lower than that, and there's some estimates that if you do it w smartly, you might actually end up making it much lower than that. But, but, but it's of that order, and I think that's an important perspective. Yes, that's the hard part. So the hard part is diplomatically, is getting, is getting other countries on board. The good news is it doesn't have to be all countries. The good news is that you can get about a dozen countries together and solve this problem. US, India, China, Russia, the EU mostly for its money more than for its emissions. You can add Japan and Canada and a few others, but, but basically in Australia, but basically you get about a dozen countries in the room. The G8 plus a few would do it. This is more of a <clears throat> political question uh, than a technical one, perhaps. Um, assuming that the, uh, the director of FEMA uh, was a term position right now, it's a political appointee, Senate-confirmed type position, at most eight years, uh, that's even unlikely. But if it was made into a 30-year term position where you could <clears throat> direct the agency over a long period of time, how, how, how would you direct uh, a strategy for, for FEMA in dealing with this issue? Oh, by the way, uh, I'm Mike Buckley and I work for FEMA. <laughs> well, I'll start out. Dan will also, of course, bring an important perspective. Um, I would start with the President's Cabinet. I think this is a, a, an issue that FEMA would be involved in tactically, but, but less so strategically. And I think it's important to point out that given the scale of the problem, our ability to size up 
in a scientific way, the observational and, and forecasting capability that's required here simply doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in this country. It doesn't exist anywhere in the world. And the first thing we have to do is put into place a, a way of quantifying this and a way of developing forecasts that are tested and trusted. And Dan showed the Keeling CO2 curve. That's the only curve related to this problem that the world trusts implicitly because he did it very carefully. He opened his shop to any kind of interrogation. And, and there isn't a person on the face of this earth that doesn't believe that carbon dioxide record. It's that kind of accuracy and it's that kind of trust that's required across a vast front in this issue. So we have to put that in place. And I, I've always <laughs> said, I think, a, a key problem with this is that the cabinet that advises the president isn't wired to deal with these problems. It doesn't connect resources with objectives in any way that's important to us, to our children, to our grandchildren. So it takes a structural change and it takes profound leadership to understand the seriousness of this problem and understand the simplicity of it. Because quite often it's made into such a complex question that you know, people are wringing their hands and worrying about this and, and, and that. It's not that complex. It's very clear what's occurring. But we don't have the mechanism in place to confront it. And just to, to underpin point, FEMA will clearly be involved. So, so I would just add that FEMA mostly is set up as a reactive institution. And I think the important transition would be to set up, either within FEMA or separately, a, a proactive institution. Um, we encourage people to live in harm's way, and then we task FEMA with dealing with the consequences. And it's not just storms, it's also the forest fires, fires in California. We have policies that encourage people to live in dangerous areas, and then we want the government to come in and rescue them. And that's a bad situation. One of the places you would have to deal with, and again, it can't just be FEMA, it's got to be transportation and labor and you know, all sorts of, of profound thinking about this. And it comes up against some very difficult political issues of social planning and, and networks and all sorts of, of, of issues here. Um, to me, one of the simplest ways to approach this is, first of all, dealing with the insurance industry. Um, the insurance industry subsidizes people to build in dangerous areas, and whether it's insurance, the private insurance industry, the reinsurance industry, or the public insurance industry through, through various forms of disaster relief. I think that's something we have to confront. We have to take away the incentives for people to live in harm's way. At the same time, we have to deal with things like New Orleans where you have very poor people who are living in harm's way but have done so for a very long time. How you deal with that is a very tricky issue. Richard Frankel, I don't speak for my agency, so I'll leave its name out. But a simple observation, in response to the folks who, who say about climate engineering, how dare you, isn't the proper response really, look what's built up that you have done, how dare you have done that? I think that may be a response, but I think, I think there, that's not giving the people who, who questioned the climate engineering focus enough credit. The truth is, um, intentionally tinkering with the climate with the possibility of creating a mistake that other people are gonna have to deal with. Um, remember, if we did it, if the US decided to do it, 
we'd be doing it on behalf of the rest of the world. That's not a very democratic process. Um, suppose China decided that they were worried about droughts and they decided to do this, single-handedly, unilaterally. How would we feel about that? Suppose it had drastic consequences on rainfall in the Midwest and it ruined our, our harvests. How would we feel about that? Those are, those are serious issues to think about. And there is a certain amount of um, arrogance when you listen to the people who are proponents of deploying this technology, I would say, without enough caution. Um, there is a, a lot of arrogance in their statements. At the same time, the alternatives may be even worse. Yeah, my response is fairly uh, quick. Uh, we are geoengineering the planet. It's only a question of how intelligently we do it. Um, Bruce Rising with Siemens Power Generation. Kind of a two-part question related to cloud cover. And uh, the question is, uh, what uh, percent, if you want to make that conjecture, of change in cloud cover might counterbalance some of this increase? And the other half of that question relates to, uh, uh, we, we've got something like 15,000 aircraft flying at high altitude at any given moment with uh, uh, a vapor trail following behind them. Uh, would you care to conjecture uh, on any role that plays in terms of, of uh, influencing, uh, in terms of uh, climate engineering? Yeah, the, the diagram I showed with the incoming solar forcing had all those arrows splaying out. And, of course, if Tony had allowed us a two-hour tutorial instead of 20 minutes, I would have explained each one of those arrows. And the interesting thing about your question, of course, is at what altitude are the clouds there? And you alluded to this by, by using both examples. What's interesting is that only, may I use billion, trillion joules again, only 200 of those actually strike the Earth's surface and come back off. So very little can be done, actually, at ground level. It's remarkable, because when I first started looking at this problem, I was thinking, well, it would be very nice if we reflected most of this back. So the low, the low clouds actually have rather small leverage associated with them. The high altitude, the cirrus clouds that are initiated by aircraft are a, a contribution, but small in this larger scale of cycling energy. Um, anything, though, that is, a, that is inserted at high altitude that reflects is a very powerful lever on the system. Um, we have 340 watts per square meter now. I'm going to switch. We all know how much is coming in from the sun. And carbon dioxide, as Dan laid it out, forces the climate by a couple of watts per square meter. So a 1% change in that incoming shortwave is 3.5 watts per square meter. So there's huge leverage. And any high-altitude flights that occur that, that amplify the cirrus cloud cover is working in the right direction. Now, I can talk about other collateral problems associated with high-altitude aircraft, but we won't go into it. But it's important to not confuse the, the issue about clouds, which is um, clouds are part of the feedbacks internal to the system. They are part of this whole system. And the gross system sensitivity is what we care about. Remember, clouds in many locations actually have about a neutral effect because they both reflect light, but they also act as a greenhouse agent. So the two effects almost cancel. And depending, as Jim said, on where they are, they either can act more as a greenhouse agent 
or more as a cooling agent. Um, and it really depends on where they are and the details of the, of the cloud physics. Um, but the overall sensitivity to the climate system is what we're talking about. And that appears to be, unfortunately, in the neighborhood of a little higher than three degrees per doubling of CO2, three degrees Celsius. Global average temperature is the way we, we think about it. That's a lot. That means that at 550 parts per million, we will see a three degree warming. And if we go to 1,000 ppm by the end of the century, we might see a five or six degree warming. That's the scale of what we're talking about. John McCormick with the Energy Policy Center. Now, Dr. Schrag, I, I don't begrudge your optimism, but I, I think what I heard you say, one could title the epitaph for capitalism. And I say that not, not in jest. I say that because I don't think we really are telling the um, investment community around the world just how grave it really is. I think we started all these conversations a long time ago looking out at the year 2100. Well, most corporate executives think in second quarter earning mentality. Um, doctor, you, you said uh, until we get control of the Arctic ice. I, I think the Arctic ice has rapidly evolved into four seasons. And I think that the, the world's future rests upon the um, integrity of the permanent ice and how long that permanent ice can sustain itself. And, and I don't think there's much chance that it can, much past 2020 or whenever. At some point along the way, we're going to see measured outflow of CO2 and methane from the permafrost. That's a given. There's no way to turn that around. So it comes back to your optimism, doctor. You know, I, I just think we have to start really telling how bad it is so that we really can begin to tell countries around the world who have long-term plans for their economic growth that it's not going to happen until we come to realize that we're at the 12th hour. And we need to say that. Well, I, I hope you didn't think my talk was completely uplifting. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I, I, um, I, I, um, I think the answer is yes, we do have to tell people how bad it is. I, I, I was trying to do that. But at the same time, telling people how bad it is and that there's no hope, I think, is a really terrible thing to say. In fact, that's what's so frustrating about this problem because it is so solvable. Compared to things we have done in this nation's history, this is actually small potatoes. It's a big deal. The energy system is huge, but it's not that huge, 100 billion a year. You know the story of FDR in 1942. Lester Brown told me this story, and it's a fantastic story. 1942, State of the Union address after Pearl Harbor. He promises to build 60,000 tanks, some ridiculous number of ships and airplanes, more than the world had ever seen before. People thought he was nuts. And he met with the heads of the automobile companies soon thereafter. And they said to him, Mr. President, we can provide 10% of what you ask. But any more than that, and you will seriously injure the automobile industry in the US. And he looked at them and he said, gentlemen, you don't understand. We won't be building any automobiles in the US. And until 1946, that's what happened. We turned our entire industrial capacity over to dealing with World War II. Now, compared to this, compared to World War II, this problem is really small. We can deal with this quickly if there's political will. I'm not saying that that is necessarily the right policy option tomorrow, but I'm saying that this is not an insurmountable challenge. 
I should point out uh, before I say what I'm going to say that Dan and I are very good friends and we will continue to be good friends even after this afternoon. <laughs> and I would point out, Dan, that in 1939, Einstein wrote a letter to Roosevelt saying, do you realize that? And it took more than two years for Roosevelt to sign the Manhattan Project, and he signed it on December 6, 1941. So I, I think this is a recognition problem. We can react, we know we can react. That isn't the issue. The issue is that we need to recognize the simplicity and the irrevocable nature that we don't need any more CO2 forcing to drive that heat into the Arctic system. And when we lose that Arctic system, um, the mortgage rate on our house goes from 5% to 25%. Uh, I'm Anna Unruh Cohen with the House Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming. And um, my question relates to um, the scientific research and observation that we need to do going forward. So heretofore, most of our endeavors in has been towards understanding the climate, monitoring what's happening. But as we, as the U.S. and the world, transition to actively trying to manage the climate system, or at least reduce our emissions into it, um, the question arises, what scientific research and observations and monitoring do we need to understand whether or not our policies are working or to understand other alternative policies. So I, it's, and it's especially relevant as we're writing climate bills uh, that will be going forward in, in the House and the Senate. So if you, either of you want to hazard um, some comments about what type of, uh, of program we should be looking at to, to help understand that and, and understand how well uh, policies we might put in place um, would be great. Anna, thank you. That, that's, that's a very good question. And I think um, uh, Jim's going to have a lot to say because Jim designs these sorts of systems. Um, but I would say that our monitoring of the Earth system as a whole is atrocious. Our climate change system has, f our, our funding system from the federal government on this issue has suffered from being sitting in so many different agencies with nobody really controlling it and steering the, 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 the vehicle forward. And, um, and it's unfortunately been a victim of a lot of politics. Um, it seems like one of the very first things you'd want to know, um, and I know Jim's going to talk about the overall radiative budget and the heat budget, and, and he's exactly right. But one of, certainly one of the things you'd want to know is you'd want to know exactly what's happening with the ice sheets. I'd want to monitor every detail about Greenland and, West, and Antarctica in general as much as possible. And the truth is, today, that satellite data that I showed you, the gravimetric data, looking at the gravity anomaly that gives you the mass loss from Greenland and Antarctica, very important observations. That satellite is due to go out of, by, what is it, 2010? 2011, something like that, and there, NASA isn't planning a new mission to put up a new satellite in its place until about 2020. So as a result, we're going to have a 10-year data gap on mass loss from the Arctic and, and Greenland. That's, that's crazy. Now, there'll be other sorts of observations, ground-penetrating radar and, and various other, you know, estimates of, of, that won't quite get you mass, they'll get you other measurements of altitude and things, but the truth is, <laughs> There, there's no coordination here. We need to have a good monitoring program, 
not just of the climate system in terms of, of, of the energy budget, but also of specific, what we call, I would call focal points of, of potential thresholds. I'd want to know exactly how much carbon is going, coming out of the tundra. If it starts to accelerate, I'd like to know about it. I'd like to know what's happening in the rainforest. If the rainforest starts to rapidly decline, that's a big deal. I'd like to know about it. All of those things, those sort of monitoring programs need to be in place, and they're not in place now. I think Dan put the perspective on this when he, when he answered the question about the investment required to steer the uh, infrastructure required to produce energy that, of course, is standing behind this problem. He was talking about $100, million, $100 billion a year. Um, I've just spent two and a half years working on this National Research Council decadal study for NASA and NOAA. And that was struggling with a budget of about $1.5 billion a year, most of which was earmarked or directed toward other things. The realizable resources going into what you and I would consider crucial for this question is, is a number that's sufficiently small that I, I'm embarrassed to even mention it here. And, and this is the center of, of, of this problem. Now, the National Research Council recommended in this decadal study a series of satellites running out to 2025. Uh, it's a very modest uh, request for observing systems, and it hasn't even been initiated in the smallest way within the agencies. There, there are no resources to even start this. And it reminds me of one of those pictures of a Western city street you know, where the storefront is brightly painted and there's a nice door and so on and the name of the store over the top of it and you look around the back and there's a swirling pile of dust with dead chickens and, and, and a, a very, very different picture appears at ground level. And this is something that Dan and I are, are truly stunned by because we have the finest students of the world coming into to our university and we represent I think one of the most exciting and serious problems and the number of students that want to work on this is huge there are no resources to support them none and this is almost none this is a truly serious problem and the, the canary in the in the cave is this NRC report on just initiating the very beginning of a global operating system that can view this and quantify it. And when you, the, the rate of inserting any kind of program is now so much slower than the disappearance of the Arctic ice cap that the entire time scale of this has been readjusted. But that hasn't affected the rate of response of the government system for a research program. And let me just add one more point about this academic training that, that Jim was talking about. Um, it's not just about the climate system, Anna, it's also about the energy system. Energy, even more than climate, has been incredibly underinvested, partly because of the cheap price of oil over the last 25 years. There was a wave of pretty good people going into the energy area in the early 70s for obvious reasons, and they are now some of the most distinguished ones are my colleagues at the Kennedy School today. But there's this gap. You have these wonderful 60, 65-year-olds who are brilliant energy policy, energy technology experts, and then, and then there's nobody in the 40s and 50s. 
And that's because we underinvested in the intellectual infrastructure here in this area. And for example, the Department of Energy. You know, first of all, we really need to rename the Department of Energy because it barely does energy. But the Department of Energy does not have a postdoctoral fellowship program for people who want to study energy technology. I see at Harvard engineers and physicists and chemists who are coming out with PhDs in those areas of physical science who want to go study new forms of energy technology. They want to leave their traditional fields and study these new areas because they want to work on this problem. And yet there are no resources to actually support these people. This is sort of the intellectual capital of the country, and we're not actually serving that, our, our own interests very well. Now, Harvard can accommodate that. We have, you know, we can raise money. But most universities can't. We have a, the best university system in the world. We need to harness that to actually solve this problem. We need to have the intellectual capital ready when we actually get the political will in line with that. Jim, assuming the money issue aside, and let's put that off the table for the moment, what, what is the research program that you might envision that would, one, address the monitoring issues that you described in your talk and give policy sense, uh, policymakers or give you some litmus test for whether policies are working? What, what should we focus on? What, what might the government focus on? Okay, I want to distinguish first between energy research and climate research. So your question was addressed at the latter. This is the climate research program first, at least, that you want to talk about. Um, I think the National Research Council decadal survey set the tone for the initiation of the scale of, of the research problem required to begin to grapple with this. And to, to, to talk a little bit about the technology of this, what's required are a new generation of very small, highly vectored satellite systems, but also robotics. Robotics is a profoundly important contributor to this because, as Dan pointed out, a lot of these systems are very uh, localized. The, the issue of carbon release from melting tundra, for example, this is one of these problems that it has its aspect related to your curiosity about a problem, and then there's the problem that wakes you up at night and you think, oh my God, what, what's at stake here? The thousand gigatons released at a rate we have no idea of. That character of problem brings with it uh, an approach that requires looking at the flow of carbon out of these systems, and it, and it requires very specific localized observations from airborne platforms, robotic aircraft, for example. So the agility and the technology innovation has to come through a number of different venues. And so uh, it's this mix that's so powerful. The satellites give you global coverage, and, and the robotic in situ type of measurement tells you very specifically information that you can take to a court of science and stand up and defend it. And of course, the ozone issue is a very uh, good example. I mean, the evidence we uh, gathered over the Antarctic nailed that problem dead to rights. There was no question. It was unequivocal. And the dynamic between the evolving science and the public policy has to be a con in constant motion. The scientific case has to become stronger for the public policy to work. So there's a whole venue 
involving these new technologies that are, that are sitting waiting to be released, but the, the, the potential is there, but there's simply no drive and no motive force behind it to execute its, its um, process. My name is Fran Moore. I work at the Earth Policy Institute. And um, you mentioned the possibility of geoengineering by adding sulfur aerosols to the atmosphere. But to a certain extent, we're already doing this, largely as a byproduct of um, coal burning. Um, I understand the neg negative effect of uh, aerosols offsets around a quarter of um, the greenhouse forcing at the moment. So as countries seek to improve their local air quality um, by limiting the emissions of sulfate, um, how important and or fair is it to make climate a part of that discussion? So, so let's, it's true we're adding a lot of sulfur to the atmosphere through coal burning. Um, we are adding hopefully less than we were. The Chinese are adding a lot more. Um, but the key is the resonance time. So the amount, uh, so sulfur when it's oxidized in the troposphere um, has an effect on climate. It's an aerosol effect. It actually masks some of the warming. So we actually have been spared some of the impact of CO2 thus far because of those sulfate aerosols. But they don't last very long. They last days to weeks. Um, they drop out very quickly from the troposphere. What we're talking about with climate engineering, and I, I really would urge people to use climate engineering, not geoengineering, because geoengineering is a catch-all phrase. Climate engineering is putting sulfur in the stratosphere where it actually would last a year or two. Very different time scale. And now there's good news and bad news about that. The bad news is it drops out after a year or two, so you have to keep putting it up. That's expensive. Although the whole cost of this wouldn't be very expensive, maybe a billion dollars a year, maybe a few billion. Um, the, the good news is that it drops out. <laughs> so that you actually, if you want to take it out, it comes out on its own. There are people who are suggested ways of putting things up there that would stay up there. And that makes me nervous because now it's hard to get it out if you decide you made a mistake. So, um, so but, but, don't, but, but in terms of the amount of sulfur we're adding to the atmosphere already because of burning coal, the sulfur we're talking about putting in the stratosphere is a tiny fraction of that. And there's one other point that, and this I think was uh, buried in your question. Um, to this point, we've actually garnered a great deal from the aerosol produced by the sulfate nitrate heavy metal emission from industry because it has reflected sunlight back and it's partially offset the trapping of infrared by carbon dioxide. However, we're very rapidly reaching the maximum effect that we can extract from this because the toxicity regionally is so large from the heavy metal sulfate nitrate emission in Asia, China is doing this experiment for us. Air is so toxic there that, that the local population can't sustain any larger source. So that means we've hit a saturation point in reflecting shortwave by aerosols and now carbon dioxide just takes off unfettered and that's the, the crucial problem here. Hi, uh, my, <clears throat> my name's Jake Levine. I'm with the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. Um, and my question is related to your roles as professors and teachers. Um, some people criticize Harvard saying that you guys just research too much and don't teach anything, but <laughs> I would hazard to say that you guys are good 
teachers as well. Um, we just passed a climate bill out of committee and <clears throat> early in 08, we're hoping to have it on the floor. One of the uh, most important things I think that came out of this process was that the bill went through a number of stages and was a very educational process for a lot of senators who may not have known anything about uh, climate change or just known a little bit. And I'm wondering as we move into 08 <clears throat> and consider the bill on the floor, how would you advise that staffers on the Hill work to educate the lawmakers for whom we work? I um, uh, thank, thank you for that question. That's a difficult question, and I think you know that. Um, I've talked to many different senators, and different senators learn in different ways. Um, and uh, so, so um, I think there are a whole variety of approaches. One of the things that I think is important to keep emphasizing is this really cannot be a partisan issue. And unfortunately, in this country, it has become that. Um, it's not in Germany. Angela Merkel's conservative. It's not in, in the UK. The Tory party is just as committed to doing something about climate change. They have a different set of policies, but they're just as conscious that this is a serious problem and needs to be addressed. So, so it's really something funny about this country that has made it a partisan issue. We have to de-emphasize that because whatever solution we take is going to take 30 years, maybe longer, and it's going to have to survive different administrations, different leaderships, and, and so we have to make it beyond partisan. Now, that may be impossible right now, but that's, that's the simple answer. As far as ways of educating senators, um, I think uh, more and more getting senators to um, look at the observations. I think the Arctic sea ice is just a stunning example. It's really hard to, to not be impressed by what's actually happening up there. And the risk, again, it's a clear example where, you know, this is a government that understands preemptive action in the case of unknown risk. And so this is a perfect example of that. We think that it's going to be bad, climate change. It could be catastrophic, but we don't know. And therefore, maybe we should take some preventive action to head it off. That's an argument that's been made before around here. And it seems like that's the argument that needs, that's the framing of it that needs to happen. Um, um, and any support that uh, faculty, that any of us can give, you know, let us know. I've got to tell you, I, I met with Senator Lott the other day. He said, wait, did they let Harvard professors in my office? Um, he, he was wonderful. But, um, uh, but, you know, different people will respond to different types of, uh, of of convincing, but I think I think the observations are pretty stunning. I think um, the staff of the House and the Senate are the most important for this. And one one clear remark, uh, and I appreciated your comment about the balance of research and teaching. That was very appropriate, and and I think I could at least reassure you that the entire curriculum at Harvard and the sciences is being restructured around this issue. You know, we used to teach physics in a separate course, chemistry in another separate course, and calculus in a third separate course. 
And the idea in nature that those would be separated, of course, is, a, is preposterous. I mean, it's only a question of the history of the structure of universities, which is very inappropriate. And the thing that unifies all of this is exactly the problem we're talking about here today. It's the collision of energy demand and the response of the climate system to that energy demand. So we've now put in a new curriculum. Um, in fact, uh, I, I wish my wife could hear you make that comment. I'm writing the text for this spring term course, which is called Physical Sciences One. It marries physics and chemistry in the context of energy and global climate. And I'm writing this text at night, on the weekends. She's just about fed up with me. And the reason this was important was that um, the staff that comprises the House and Senate come directly out of these courses. And you can't expect the student to, to look at these segmented pieces and try to put it together by the time they've decided science isn't for them, they want to do something interesting. So we have to start at the freshman level. And when you start at the freshman level, you have to define the context of the problem, the energy climate context, but the concepts have to be as fundamental and as rigorous as they would be in a course in physics or chemistry. And it turns out that the text is required because first of all, there aren't any that do this. And secondly, at that level, you have to distinguish the context from the concepts that go into the course. So, so all I can say is it was an excellent question. It was very appropriate, but we're doing everything we can to correct for, for past failures in this area. And I think this, I know that the students that come out of this course are in the 98th percentile in their knowledge of the problem, which isn't so much a reflection of the quality of the course, but the comparison against which they're, they're, they're cast. On, on the climate engineering question again, um, are, Dan, you partially answered this moment ago by pointing out that we're talking about a lot, a much smaller amount of sulfur that would be involved in a stratospheric injection. Besides un unintended climate consequences, what what is the fate of this of this sulfur when it settles back into the lower atmosphere? Are there environmental quality concerns associated with with the resettling process? If we have to do this for 20, 30 years. The answer, the good news to that is no. The answer is, um, uh, will it have some effects? Probably. Will there be some ozone effects? Perhaps. But I think small relative to everything else we're doing. Um, but again, compared to the amount of sulfur that's going into the atmosphere already, the lower atmosphere, it's a small amount. So what happens is the sulfur you injected into the stratosphere, and it would then settle and fall out just like the other sulfur that's there, and it would be just exactly like the rest of the sulfur there, but it would be a very small fraction. Can so, train it on one part of the globe? Well, that's a good question. So, so that's the sort of the crude way to do climate engineering is with sulfur. The more sophisticated way would be to engineer particles that might stay aloft longer. Again, that comes with a downside, as I mentioned. It's a two-edged sword, right? You don't have, don't have as much control. You could also potentially engineer particles that would have tendencies to gravitate towards the, to, to, to move towards the magnetic field, to the magnetic pole. Um, and so you might be able to actually engineer particles that would hover over Greenland. Um, there, there are certainly ideas out there. Whether they would work, I don't know. I think there are, remember there's been very little research in this area. 
um, I think there was a strong consensus among our community that we need to spend a lot more effort researching this. By the way, that costs almost nothing because there's been zero spent on this. So, so anything spent on this is a huge increase from what we're doing now. Um, but my own view would be this, that, that for every dollar I spent figuring out new ideas of how to climb an engineer, I would spend $5 or $10 figuring out everything that might go wrong. Because you know this is like building the biggest Ferris wheel in the world and putting all the world's children in it. You know this is something that is you really want it. If, if you're going to do it, you really want it to work. And so, to me, you really need to spend more attention, not thinking up creative ways of doing it, but thinking of creative ways that this might go wrong because you don't want surprises. One more follow-up. Do you have any uh, thoughts on how to extract or get CO2 that's already in the atmosphere out of the atmosphere? It's, uh, it's got a long lifetime up there. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, uh, my, I just published a paper on uh, an idea recently, a way of speeding up the chemical reaction between water and rock. It's not a very good idea because it's very expensive. Um, there are other people who have talked about building towers that would scrub CO2 out of the air. That's also very expensive. To give you a, a scale, the optimistic view of the cost of that, and that's a very optimistic view, I think it's way too optimistic, is it might cost as little as $100 a ton of CO2. Um, that's, I think it's probably closer to 150 to 200. Now, the cost of sequestration, pessimistically, is $50, $60 a ton of CO2, and optimistically could be as low as $30 a ton of CO2. So um, that says economically you would scrub every bit of carbon out of every coal plant long before you would try to take it out of the atmosphere. Second part of that is that the cheapest way to actually scrub it out of the atmosphere is to actually co-feed biomass into a coal plant that you're capturing the CO2 and sequestering it because then essentially if you take biomass that's naturally scrubbed carbon out of the air, use it for energy, put it in your in your coal plant, add some wood chips, and sequester the CO2, that's a negative. So that's by far the most economic way to do it, is actually biomass to sequestration into electric power. That's, that's something Siemens should be thinking about. Let me uh, close by uh, asking one final question or making a comment. Um, it seems that quite often we're sort of reactive as a society, no matter what it is, um, and that governments might benefit by committees on the future, so to speak, in other words, whose only purpose would be to think about the next 10, 20, 30 years and advise on that basis. What, what are your thoughts on that? Isn't that what a university is? Well, I, th I think this gets back to the organization of the president's cabinet. I think we think in 10, 20-year segments in certain aspects of the responsibilities borne by the president's cabinet, but we don't think in those same strategic terms about this problem. And I, um, I would just, I should point out that the simplicity of the picture I've described today is in, in many ways, I think, of 
foundation for, for strategic thought. I also have to say that in answer to your question, I, I basically realized this when I was preparing this freshman course. I was trying to make the first law of thermodynamics interesting, which I can tell you is a huge challenge. And all of a sudden I realized this is, this is the fundamental problem. It's a, it's a, a question of conservation of, of energy. And I think if the cabinet actually had people in it who were singularly responsible for what they did in perpetuity, we'd have a very different situation. If you're Secretary of State, you're remembered for what you did for the country in international diplomacy. And certainly that's true of the presidency and a number of other cabinet positions. You really have to think about the 10, 20, 30 year period. So that's why I come back to the architecture of the, of the cabinet. I think there, if, if this kind of strategic thinking were part of it and the person in that position realized it'd be judged by history, we'd have a very different strategic approach to this. Let me try to just end on a note of optimism. I think the answer is that, well, maybe some long-term uh, committee, I'm not quite sure how that would work. Maybe that's a good idea. I don't know. But I've got to tell you, a lot of long-term thinking is going on today. And it's going on in a surprising place. You know, somebody commented here that CEOs think about the next quarter. But that's actually not true. In my observation, in the last 18 months, I have seen profound change in American business on this issue. I've sat down with the head of public policy from Bank of America and helped write their, their climate policy. They're you know, paying money to any employee of their 200,000 employees to, who would buy a hybrid car. They're putting out billions of dollars of, of, of low interest loans for energy efficiency. They're doing amazing things. Um, I've seen many, many other companies in almost any, every sector actually get interested in this issue and embrace this issue. And companies do actually plan long term. They still have to worry about the bottom line in the next quarter, but they're not stupid. They are planning long term, and I've seen them change enormously. And so while we haven't yet seen a law get signed, or a bill get signed into law on this issue that's really going to make a profound change at the government level, I think that the business change in this country has been so profound that it's only a matter of time before government follows what business is doing. I mean, if you just look around the business community, it's a different world from what it was two years ago. And, and I think that's a sign of hope. Well, with that, I'd like to uh, bring our discussion to a close. Well, we've been talking for a good hour. Um, anyway, I want to thank the two speakers for their time, energy, and uh, the quality of the discussion. Thank you very much, and thank you for coming. Thank you.